A judge swore in a lawyer who was once a drug dealer in his court 16 years ago. Perkins Law Group shared these photos. Edward Martell passed the State Bar of Michigan nearly 20 years after pleading guilty to selling and manufacturing crack cocaine. He credits the advice he got from the judge for helping him turn his life around. Martell said, quote, I will never forget what he told me. You don't have to be out here selling drugs. You have greatness within you. I challenge you be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. The former defendant says he will use his story to pave the path for others who stand where he did all those years ago. Now that's how the system is supposed to work. It's supposed to give people the proper second chance so that they can actually do something with their lives. And with this in thought, I then am forced to ask each and every one of you, if you could go back in time and if there was one thing in your life that you could do over again, kind of like the second chance this guy had, what would it be? I don't like to ask questions of you without having to wrestle with them myself. So as I was writing this, I'm thinking, okay, what would I want to do if I had a second chance, a second opportunity to make things right? Truth of the matter is, if I could turn back the hands of the clock, what I would like to do is go back to the time when I was a young man, a young father, and actually choose to spend more time with my family. Um, truth of the matter is, when I was a young pastor, I was so worried about failing that I ended up really neglecting my family. And so that's my regret, and to this day what I've tried to do is not turn back the hands of time, but actually make them more a priority and focus of my life. And if you don't believe me, just ask that woman. She will testify to everything I just said. I was literally a workaholic, and I put, well, the church in front of my God-given responsibility to be a father and a husband. That's my regret. So I want you to wrestle with it too. Maybe you don't have to get that honest about it, but if you had a second chance to do something over again, what would it be? And as you think about that, and if you think about the mistakes that we've made in our lives and all the things that we'd like to do differently, I have good news for you. I have this amazing lesson from God's Word to share with you today. And as we deal, deal and plow uh, deeper with sanctification, what we've come to learn with today's lesson is it's actually God's gift to us to give us a second chance. In a way, when the Holy Spirit gives us the gift of faith, he holds out to us this amazing blessing, and he says to us, what would you do differently this time? Where we get this lesson from is recorded in Paul's letter to the Roman church, the early Christians in Rome, and from chapter 6 where we read, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not, <coughs> excuse me, for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. As you know, I'd like to set the setting, give you the context for today's lesson, and I don't have to belabor that this morning because actually one month ago from this Sunday, we had a different, a previous lesson from Paul's letter to the Romans. And with that lesson, I showed you a, a video giving you the full background of how God the Holy Spirit had Paul write to that congregation. I'm not going to replay that this morning, but if you'd like to review that on your own, then all you need to do is go to the church website and look for the sermon for that Sunday, Easter 5, the one that talked about the narrow sense of sanctification just watch the opening minutes of that and you'll see the video if you don't want to do that then all you have to do is email me and I will actually send you directly the link to that video and you'll get the full story for the book of Romans 
Since I'm not going to rehash all that, what I would like to do this morning is actually hit a couple unique things about this letter which Paul writes. And you will realize that as we've been going through the sanctification study, we've been looking at a lot of his epistles. One of the things that the early church needed to get their heads around, what is this teaching of sanctification? And sadly, thousands of years later, we're still trying to learn it today. So what makes this letter unique is first and foremost the fact that the church in Rome had no direct apostolic uh, connection, meaning it wasn't started by one of the apostles, and unlike all the other early churches, there wasn't one apostle really assigned to oversee it. It was kind of left with this void of doctrinal leadership. And so the Holy Spirit takes care of that through this letter by the Apostle Paul. It has been regarded as one of the most doctrinally sound and full books of the New Testament. And if you read through it, you will find uh, God wisely uses Paul to spell a lot of what we believe out word for word, including this doctrine of sanctification. The second thing that's unique about the book to the Romans is that Paul actually writes them with plans, meaning it was his intention to visit the church in Rome and from there actually begin doing mission work in the country of Spain. So what he's telling them is we'd like to actually use your congregation as a base of operation, as a jumping point into other parts of the world. Ironically enough, Paul did make it to Rome, but not to do mission work. He writes this letter during his third missionary journey, and when he gets back to the city of Jerusalem, there he's arrested because the Jews hated him so much, and he actually was taken to the city of Rome, but not to do mission work, rather to stand trial for his faith. Then the third thing is, and this is the one that I think gets overlooked quite a bit when we start to deal with the book of Romans, is like many of the other early churches, there was a struggle. There was a challenge that needed to be dealt with. Since this congregation was made up of quite a mix of both Gentile and Jewish Christians, there was this increasing tension between these two ethnic groups. Uh, there was a lot of friction. And the problem was is that they weren't able to properly make a good witness of what God had done for them to the rest of the world. And so the Holy Spirit inspires the Apostle Paul to give them direction how to deal with this, and that falls in with part of our lesson today. Paul teaches them about sanctification, about actually living your faith out for all of the right reasons and to, in a sense, reap all of the right blessings. Now, what we find Paul doing as he writes this letter to them is setting the scene, and that comes in the verses right previous to our lesson today. And what he does is he takes them back, first and foremost, to the essence of their faith. He takes them to the cross. And he says, you're in a relationship with God. You are Christian because of Christ and the fact that he gave his perfect life as the sacrifice for your sin and the sins of the entire world. But he doesn't stop there. And this is where he, if you will, leaps into sanctification. He says, well, that sacrifice has made you perfect and right in God's eyes. It doesn't stop there. God has actually recreated you, spiritually resurrected you, to live a life here that not only reflects his love, but ultimately is filled with the blessings that God designed us to receive. And for that, Paul says, you go to the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Easter morning empowers us in such a way that I'm not sure we fully can embrace it. And oftentimes we don't really discuss it enough. And I know Easter seems like this distant memory. It was two months ago we gathered here to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. And usually the focus of most Easter's is how Jesus is defeating death, takes away our fear of death, and gives us our eternal life. 
But the thing that is often overlooked is, is that Easter morning actually empowers us to live exactly the way that God designed and created us to live in this world. That happens because Jesus defeated death and walked out of the tomb perfectly uh, restored, if you will, his body being everything it was meant to be, and it becomes not only the model, but also the power behind our own sanctified lives. Somewhere along the way, the Roman Christians had forgotten about all this, or they had kind of pushed it to the side, and they forgot that their lives were meant to be a true reflection of what Christ did at the cross and at the tomb. And so now Paul leads him back into that. He wants him to think along these lines. And he says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. He uses this really neat word. And it, I put it up, logizomai. Well, what's that mean? So you understand, it's where we get our English word logic. And in, in its most basic element, it's not the way we think of it, the way you reason things out necessarily. It literally means to take an inventory. Uh, you need to count things out. And, and so what Paul is telling these people is, you should sit down and start reflecting on and counting out all of the things that come as a result of Christ's death and resurrection. And in fact, what he's trying to teach them is sometimes we so focus on the cross, and don't misunderstand me, we shouldn't neglect it, but we forget something comes after that. Three days later, everything changed when Christ was raised back to life. He wants them to stop and take stock of the fact that, quite honestly, they weren't living out their Christian faith, not with their fellow church members, and they weren't actually giving a proper witness to the rest of the world what it means to have your life changed. And so he says, stop and take stock of your life. Stop and take a good hard look at what God has done to you. Maybe the best example would be to look at it this way. Imagine that you're in the hospital, you're in the operating room, you have something seriously wrong with you, and you're laying on the table, and before the anesthetic takes uh, effect, you hear the doctors talking, say, you know, there's, there's really not much we can do for this guy. And the last thing you hear in your earthly life is that heart monitor going to its monotone beep, beep, means you're dead. And then all of a sudden, a couple of minutes later, you wake up your eyes and all these doctors are standing over the top of you going, holy mackerel, this guy came back to life. It's a miracle. There's nothing we could do, but he's alive again. That's how the resurrection works in our earthly lives. It doesn't just get us ready for the day we die. It actually empowers us every day that we live. Instead of being afraid of death, sometimes what happens is we're afraid to live. Easter takes that fear away. And as you're laying there, imagine, not only would you be overjoyed with the fact that somehow you have been miraculously been restored to life, and that means that you get a chance to be reunited with your friends and your family, but the thought that most definitely, I think, would cross most of our minds is, now what am I going to do with this second chance? Wouldn't you want to squeeze every bit of life out of this new opportunity to really live? It would not only give you a new outlook on everything, but more specifically, it would give you a new outlook on how can I actually be everything I've always wanted to be, everything God has always wanted me to be. And from that moment forward, you would start answering that question, what would you do differently? Well, I'm not going to waste my time on this, and I'm not going to waste my time on that. I'm going to focus on what's important. I'm going to invest myself in what actually is God-pleasing and a blessing to each and everybody else. That's where Paul wants to take these Roman Christians and have them start thinking along the line of, don't let sin reign in your life. He uses this word which really means, who's your king? Who's your ruler? 
And, and Paul's making the point. He calls these Roman Christians out to uh, all appearances. It looks like you're not actually living your faith. You guys are acting selfishly. You're biting each other in the back. You're treating each other like God never did anything for you this tension within the church, and maybe you've actually been part of that, where sometimes it seems like the devil works so hard inside the church, people from the outside have to look and go, well, if that's a Christian, I don't want to be that. Now, Paul's calling them out, not just for the sake of their witness to the world, but he wants them to understand that when you don't actually live with the power that God gives you in your gift of faith, it's a deterrent to you. It harms yourself as much as it harms others. And that's why he's telling them, you really need to stop and take a good hard look at whether or not your faith matters to you. And in fact, he's giving them now a string of commands. That's what this imperative voice means. It's a command. It's an order. It's the Holy Spirit telling them, not the Apostle Paul, but the Holy Spirit telling them, this is what you need to do. In fact, what Paul says the resurrection does for them is it gives us back something that was stolen from us moments after creation. As soon as sin came into this world, what was ripped out of our hands was the opportunity to choose. God created his amazing and beautiful creatures, man and woman, with a free will and the opportunity to choose whether or not they would obey and follow God or whether they would go on their own. And of course, you know how that turned out. This word basically, and what I'm highlighting for you, is that it's the Holy Spirit putting it in the act of voice. Well, there he goes again with that grammar stuff, but it's highly important. So you understand, before the gift of faith, we have no choices. We are condemned in sin. We are children of the devil. But once the Holy Spirit comes and gives us this precious gift of belief in Jesus as our Savior, all of a sudden, all bets are off. It's God actually saying to us, I want you to be what I created you to be. I'm going to give back to you this opportunity to pledge your allegiance to God. To follow God, not because you're afraid of being punished, but to actually follow what God says about your life because of the freedom it actually offers to you. It's not that different than pledging allegiance to the flag of our own country because we know it's one of the freest countries on the face of the earth. And if we were to give that up and go to a country that was ruled by a dictator, it would be stupid. But sometimes Paul says to the Romans, you're doing that spiritually. You're giving up your freedom as you pledge allegiance and you're following the ways of the devil. You're following the ways of the world. You're following the ways of your sinful nature. And so this is the part that I have been really wanting to get to in this study because I believe it's probably one of those most under-discussed areas of sanctification. It actually makes us a little bit uncomfortable, I think, sometimes when I tell you as Christians that God has given us back the ability to choose. I think part of our uncomfortability with that is the fact that there are some uh, religions that actually teach that sinful human beings can somehow choose God, and, and you can't. When you do not have faith, you have no choices. You are locked into being that lost and condemned sinner. It's not until God reaches out to you with faith that he gives us back this amazing creation and gift. You get to choose how to live your life as one of God's children. Maybe the best way, and Paul says it, don't offer yourself as instruments of wickedness. Don't choose to follow the way of the devil. Instead, choose to follow the ways of God, instruments of righteousness. Simply put, what God does is he takes us back in time to that moment where Adam and Eve were still perfect, and he presented to them the two trees, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. 
God says, I have given you the option and the ability to choose life. And that's what I would like you to do. But as a loving parent, and all of you who've raised children, you recognize that moment in time comes when all that you've invested into them has to now fall on their shoulders and they have to choose. And unfortunately, oftentimes, what we see in our own children is they don't make the right choice. The reality is, is that Adam and Eve, before sin, were just that, perfect, like God, before sin. We actually now possess a second nature. We get that from Adam's poor choice. That's why we call it the old Adam. Now we wrestle with these two natures, something that they originally didn't have to do. And we have one pushing us in one direction and one nature pushing us in the opposite direction. And that's why Paul takes the Romans back to the cross and to the tomb. And when you sit there focusing on what Christ has done for us, you would actually think that it would be an easy and an obvious choice. I want to choose to do what God wants. Unfortunately, oftentimes it doesn't go that way. The evidence is everywhere. Our world is fallen. Pain and sadness are around every corner. Destruction and death are regular parts of our lives. We're hurting. The world is hurting. Yet, it seems like we don't have time for God anymore. We're all too busy seeking a way out of the pain of this world. We seek wealth in the hope that money will make our lives better. We turn to drugs and alcohol to escape the pain. The relentless pursuit of sex, power, success, and fame, aren't they all just attempts at avoiding the agonies of everyday life? We're all hurting, and we all try to find answers to our problems as though we can fix them. But we can't. There's nothing we can do on our own to escape this fallen world. No one is immune. It doesn't matter what religion or denomination you are. Race, ethnicity, class, location, gender, we're all fallen and beyond the capacity to help ourselves. So how can we escape? The answer is Jesus. All we have to do is stop trying to fix the problems of this world ourselves and hand them over to God, because we can never do it. Part of our study through sanctification has been to remind ourselves what is sanctification and what isn't. Being sanctified, being given this choice from God, doesn't mean that we become God. It doesn't mean that we have the abilities or powers to do everything that we want to do and everything that God created us to do. The beauty of sanctification, properly understood, is that it actually takes us back to the cross and to the empty tomb. I'm revisiting the opening verse of what Paul wrote to these Romans because there's this amazing phrase that he puts in there. Our power is in Christ Jesus. And again, it's a very grammatical phrase, but it's what's known as the date of a means. This is the means, this is the power by which everything else Paul now says, properly using your sanctified choices, properly following God, all of these things happen only through Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, there is no solution, not only to sin, but there's no solution for sanctification. Without Jesus, all we find ourselves doing is the very same thing that Adam and Eve do, did. 
is making ourselves into God, thinking that we're big enough or strong enough to do all that needs to be done. And when we mess up along the way, somehow we can fix it. But we can't. And so Paul begins and ends, if you will, with this special lesson for the Roman Christians by pointing them back to Jesus. And in fact, this last closing verse that he shares with them, for sin shall not be your master. Interestingly enough, that's the very same Lord that we use for Jesus. It's the one that we typically translate as Lord. Sin shall not be your Lord. Jesus is. And in fact, when Christ is your Lord, you are no longer under the law. Here he also deals with the proper motivation for sanctification. It's not the law that tells us what to do and how to do it. It's Christ that shows us what God wants and then empowers us to actually make that possible. If you do things, the right thing, the godly thing, only because you're afraid of being punished, only because God's law is going to come down heavy on you and it's going to feel like you're a failure and you deserve nothing but hell, that's not sanctification. But when God's love touches your heart, when God's love changes your life, and your natural response is, how can I absolutely show this God my love in return? That's sanctification. That's the second chance that God offers us. Again, let me use a picture. Every time there's a holiday, I think especially of like Valentine's Day or Mother's Day or Father's Day, which is quickly coming up, there's always that dare I use the word obligation, that people need to go out and purchase gifts to give to the other person. And that's just generally what we do. But stop and ask yourself, why? Am I getting mom this gift because I have to? Am I giving my sweetheart these flowers because that's what's expected? That's the law at work. That's guilt and shame and the threat of punishment motivating us to do what we have to do. Or, when you go to purchase that gift, you look for the best possible gift because you really love that person. You hunt and you consider and you weigh in your mind, will she like this, will he like that? And you purchase that gift for them for no other reason than you absolutely love them. You see, while it looks like the very same thing on the outside, they are completely opposite because one is the work of human hands. The other one comes straight from the heart. And that's where sanctification takes us. It is a heartfelt response to everything that God has done for us. Which brings us right back to where we started. Regret. Truth of the matter is, is there's a lot of times in our lives that we don't properly understand sanctification or actually live it. We still make stupid choices. We still make sinful decisions. And we have to deal with that. We have to deal with the fact that God created us to be perfect and designed us absolutely perfectly to live and exist in this world, which he created for us. And to be honest, there's a lot of times that we just don't get it right. And so should we live with this kind of regret? Should we feel bad for what we've done? Well, Christ paid for every one of those mistakes, sins, foolish choices on the cross. And usually that's where the message stops, but not today. Because three days later, he walked out of the tomb. He showed that tomb empty. He defeated death and sin. And that's what gives us the power now to move forward, leaving regret behind and actually taking opportunity to make godly choices, to follow God's plan, not because we have to, 
but because we want to. In fact, let me encourage this, and I know you're oftentimes encouraged to read your Bible, but I would suggest that you start to study it in a different way. Start to look at it as the manual for our life, and not just the how-to, but how did God design things to work here? How did God design the family and how it's supposed to operate? How did God design the marriage and how it's supposed to function? How did God design the church and how it's supposed to actually work in this world? And when you start to look at it that way, you start to get a better handle on sanctification. And it's not just, oh, I need to do these things because I'm Christian or it's going to make God happy. You actually go, holy mackerel, this is the right design. And when I follow it, my life is actually better than I ever thought it could be. Doesn't mean that sin won't touch us. Doesn't mean that temptation won't be in our way. But you work through those things recognizing that God has already offered us the answer or the end game to this because that's how he designed it. I'd love to tell you that if you study it that way, not only will your eyes be open, but your whole life will be open in a way where you never have to deal with regret again. If I told you that, I'd be a liar. In fact, what I need to tell you is that from this point forward, we're actually going to start to get to the real hard stuff of sanctification. We're going to have to deal with how do we suppress that sinful nature, that thing that we've inherited from our fathers that takes us all the way back to Adam making that stupid decision. And it's not going to be easy, both in the study as well as the application within our lives. Think of Eve, perfectly created in God's image, meaning she wasn't sinful from the start. And as she stood there debating the choice, should I? Shouldn't I? She listened to the devil. And she did that while she was still thinking in a perfect way. And so it isn't easy to follow the sanctified path. Unless you think I'm going to pick on Eve, well, let me spend a little few moments picking on Adam. Because he also stood right there watching what she was doing, and he then makes the same stupid choice. Even though God had designed him to do one thing, to love and protect his wife. And he let her do that terrible thing. And if that wasn't enough, then he turns around and does it. And when God calls him out for it, he tries to blame her. How's that for being a real man? Truth of the matter is, none of this would actually work and none of this would make any sense if it isn't for what came next. Because for the first time in the history of mankind, rather than having their heart filled with love, it was filled with fear. Fear of God, fear of punishment. How much of our lives aren't ruled under that same way? I'm afraid I'm going to get in trouble, so I better do the right thing. I'm afraid God won't love me if I don't, don't do A, B, and C. That's not how God designed us, and that's not how God designed this life. And to prove it, as soon as those two messed everything up, God came looking for them. And from that moment forward, God showed us he is a God of second chances. He made the promise of sending a Savior, which offers us another opportunity to spend eternity with our Creator God. But that wasn't enough. He says not only will He make everything right between you and me, He's going to restore at least a portion of this life so you can enjoy what I created you for. And on Easter morning, He shows us that's exactly what He came to do. To take away our sin, but to give us our lives back. I don't think we talk enough about that. I don't think we thank God enough for that. I don't think we celebrate that enough. I don't think that we squeeze all the blessings out of what God created for us. And it's probably time that we start, considering the fact that this world is filled with nothing but bad news. It's nice to know that God gives us all a second chance, not only at eternity, but at life here, with you 
with him and with each other. That's the message he's trying to teach these Roman Christians. And knowing all this, then let me end by asking you a simple question. What would you do differently? Regrets. We all carry these. Some are small, others are huge, seemingly unbearable. The angry word, the selfish choice, the poor decision. There's those failed relationships or the time we broke a promise. And regret is a silent wound. No one sees it, but we all carry them. On the outside, we can look like we're in control, but internally, in our heart and our soul, we carry the ache of regret. So what do we do with regret? With mistakes and failures and disappointment. Easter is about giving each of us the opportunity to deal with regret. Jesus' death and resurrection dealt with failure and responds to the sin of humanity. It gives us another option than just carrying regret. At the first Easter, two close friends of Jesus give us a picture of different ways we can respond to regret. Both of these individuals abandoned Jesus. Judas abandons Jesus for money and the chance to get rich. He sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Peter also abandons Jesus, but for reputation. In Jesus' moment of greatest need, Peter denies even knowing him. Peter chooses safety over loyalty. Later, both Judas and Peter are racked with regret. Jesus' death on the cross was not just the death of an innocent man. Jesus is taking on himself the failures and the sin of all people. This was a moment where the regrets of everyone is dealt with by the actions of an individual. Now, in death, Jesus carried our sins, but in resurrection, he demonstrated that the power of sin was broken. Freedom, freedom is actually possible for all of us. We all now have a choice. We can either carry regrets through all of our lives and pay for them ourselves, or we can allow Jesus to pay for us. Those two friends, Judas and Peter, chose two different paths. Judas carried his regret himself, and the result was awful. Peter took his regret to Jesus, and he was given a fresh start, new hope in life. <laughs>